Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Good morning, church. Please be seated. And uh, those who are watching online, I would encourage you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. I know last week, Pastor Keith was speaking on the schemes of the devil from Nehemiah chapter 6. Now, he spoke of three strategies that the devil employs. And he said he was... He spoke of three strategies that the devil employs. He is persuasive, he is persistent, and he was perplexing. And he talks about our response to devil's strategies. There are three things that he mentioned again, that we ought to be preoccupied, we ought to be persistent, and we ought to be prayerful. Now, this is when the enemy is attacking from outside. Now, today we'll be looking at the enemy from within. How do you handle internal conflict? So this is what we're going to look at from chapter 5 of Nehemiah. Whether it is in your professional life or your personal life or in our church life, when there is an attack from outside, we could be united and confront the enemy But truth be told, we are crippled when the enemy is from within. When you are to face an abusive husband or a spouse, when there is a rebellious child, when there is a Judas in your close circle, when there is a Brutus in your personal life, betrayal from a trusted member of your church, or backstab from your closest friend, That cripples you. It pains you beyond comprehension, doesn't it? So chapter 5 shows us how Nehemiah had to deal with conflict from within. So let us understand the context first. So please turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. And please pay close attention as I read the text from Nehemiah chapter 5. I'll read from verse number 5, verse number 1 to 5. And there was a great outcry of the people and their lives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, we are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some there were also some who said we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. Verse number four. There were also those who said we have borrowed money for the king's tax. 
on our lands and vineyards. Verse number five, yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyard. Just so what was the problem here? It was purely internal. In verses 1 to 5, we see that the poorer Jews are complaining against the wealthy Jews by ignoring their desperate needs or by exploiting them. The famine made things worse as you look at this passage. Those who owned property were forced to mortgage their fields and vineyards and houses in order to get food. Others had to borrow in order to pay king's tax on their lands. Some were even forced to sell their children into slavery to their fellow Jews in order to pay the bills. They all knew that the Mosaic law forbade Jews from loaning money at interest to a fellow Jew. But see what the wealthier Jews are doing. Now look at verse number 11. Restore now to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. And see the next line. Also, a hundredth of the money and the grain. The wealthier Jews were charging high interest for the money loaned. A hundredth of the money simply means it's a 1% per month, amounting to about 12% per month, per year, excuse me, the interest rate. Now, they were not only charging interest, but also they were taking Jewish children, slaves, as collateral for the loans. They were operating as ruthless, selfish businessmen. They put their own financial gain above everything, above the welfare of the fellow Jews. They have no regard for how it hurt their poor fellow brethren their own people, and their families. So the issues were big enough for Nehemiah to stop the work on the wall long enough to get them resolved. So the way he dealt with things and the people's response actually show us some biblical principles for resolving conflicts in the church, in the families, in our personal lives. Even though it is very relevant to conflicts within the body of Christ, these principles, I want you to get this clearly, these principles are transferable to apply in family conflicts too. Church, I want you to always remember this. In order for us to excel in the Lord's work, we must resolve conflicts in a church in a biblical manner. In order for us to raise a godly family, we must resolve conflicts within the household in a biblical manner. Now, there are two simple but very profound principles here. One involves the people and the other involves the leaders. Now, in the circle of influence, you could be a leader or you could be a follower. 
You may be a leader in one setting, but in another, you will be a follower. As a father, you are the spiritual leader of the household. But as an employee, you are a follower in your workplace. So there are lessons for every role that we take in life. Come along with me, church, as, and see how to handle the internal conflict in a biblical manner. So the first thing is to, to resolve conflicts biblically. People must air their complaints to the proper authorities, proper leaders. In other words, what I'm saying is that you must deal directly with the leader. If it's in a church, if it's in your family, it's if, if it's in your workplace. Now, in this particular text, we do not know whether the affected party spoke first to the ones who were exploiting them. But at this point in chapter 5, all we know is that the issue was brought to the attention of Nehemiah. At least Nehemiah heard about it. So we all know that a leader cannot deal with problems that he is not aware of. Many times you will realize that a leader is the last person to know the brewing issues. It is impossible to deal with problems when you do not know about them. I'm really amazed at how often people air their complaints to everyone except their leaders. They always have an excuse. I just want to see how others feel. I just want to vent. Oh, the pastor is too busy. My dad is too busy. My mom is too busy to listen to me. Oh, if I, if I go and complain, I'll become a victim and I will be judged and it will be used against me. So what do we do? We circulate through the church, stirring up dissension and disunity. But the leaders don't even know that there is a problem. So church, when we see a problem... We ought to bring it immediately to the attention of the leaders. Otherwise, we are guilty of stirring up dissension and spreading gossip. So to resolve conflicts or problems biblically, we must go directly to the person responsible and talk about the problem. If someone comes to you with a complaint about the church, or ask if he... Uh, first thing you should do is to ask if he has spoken to the leader of the church. If someone comes to you from another family and come and talk to you about the problem that they are experiencing, the first thing you need to ask is, have you spoken to your mom and dad? Have you spoken to your children? Because if not, we should direct them to do so before they talk to someone else. Many misunderstandings can be resolved at this level without causing the problems in the church. And it's the same is true in families as well, church. In our own homes, we should be able to openly, within the four walls of the house, talk with the godly leader. The father and the mother ought to be accessible to the children so that they can pour their hearts out without being intimidated or punished. The husband or the wife ought to be accessible to each other so that he or she can pour out their issues without being judged. 
So it starts with you to command authority by being the godly leader within your own household. So the other person feels comfortable to coming and talking to you. So the leadership, whether it's in the house or whether it's in the church or whether it's in the business, it must be commanded. And it cannot, let me repeat, it cannot be demanded. So if your child is not able to share the good, bad, and the ugly of their personal lives, you have failed as a parent. If your spouse is not able to share their fear and concern openly, you have failed as a partner. People are reluctant to talk because they feel they would be judged when they know that this would be used against them in the future, when they know they would be punished unreasonably. So my first appeal to you is to command your leadership within the circle of influence. So you might ask, how are we to command? Let the scripture speak for itself. Here's what the Lord is offering us. Pay attention to this place. We find that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me ask you the question. How do you handle when someone admits that they have made a mistake? Secondly, we find that the Lord says, I even I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. How about you? Do you forgive and forget? Or do you say, I forgive, but I will never forget? Look at this. But God demonstrates His own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When someone is doing bad things, we ought to love them. We hate their sin, but we ought to love them. Look at the next passage. And above all things, a fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. It will cover a multitude of sins. So can this be told of us? Let me ask you directly. Will your child or your spouse or your family, your friends or your colleague would say this about you? This is how you command so the first lesson that we are learning to resolve conflicts biblically, people must be able to air complaints to the proper authorities. For that, one should command leadership. You should command leadership. You earn your position of leadership in the area of your influence. Now this is to do with people. The second lesson that we are learning from this Nehemiah chapter 5 is about leaders. Secondly, what we are seeing is the leaders must deal biblically when the issues are brought to you. To resolve conflicts, leaders must deal with complaints in a biblical manner. So Nehemiah is an example of godly leadership. And that's why we are going through the series on the book of Nehemiah, he could have easily told these people, I'm busy at this moment building these walls and I'll address this problem later. Come back in a month. But Nehemiah realized that the problems were significant and the people were upset. 
So he interrupted, he stopped his work to listen and to help resolve the matters. There are five things that leaders should do that we can learn from this. Every one of you should take note of this. As you are in some leadership role, either here in the church or in your family or in your workplace. The first thing is this. We see in verse number six. And Nehemiah says, I became what? Very angry. So Nehemiah's response, he got righteously anger. It may surprise us to read that Nehemiah got very angry and you may think that, oh no, how can a leader become so angry? Isn't it? Isn't it wrong to be angry, not showing mercy and grace? If he gets angry, Nehemiah is certainly not fit to be a leader. What do you think about this? The Bible clearly teaches that most anger is sinful. That some anger is righteous. And as you look at the Markan narrative in chapter 3, we see that Jesus is entering a synagogue. And when he entered the synagogue, there were Pharisees. They watched him closely and there was a man who was brought in with a withered hand. And, and, and chapter 3 says, and the Pharisees, they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the, on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And what was Jesus' response? Look at this. And when he had looked around at them with, read that word with me, anger. Being grieved by but the hardening of their hearts. Nothing wrong in getting angry, but what you do with that? If our anger is directed against the sinful treatment of others, if we allow it to move us toward constructive means to try to resolve problems, it may be a right, righteous anger. But if it involves a wrong committed against us, it may be righteous, but it's very important that we examine our motives. And we looked at it a couple of Sundays ago in the life of Nehemiah. Church, I want you to understand a righteous anger will lead you to attack the problems and not the persons. A righteous anger will allow you to see the schemes of the devil in every situation. A righteous anger will bring confidence to those knowing that they are not judged, but they will be restored. A righteous anger will point them to Christ for solutions. I've always mentioned this to you, when you are angry and we are rebuking somebody, your left arm must be around them as you as you speak to them on, with their right arm, it's like you are pushing them every time you confront somebody, but they must know that you are going, not allowing them to fall. You're holding them with your left arm. It is right to get angry about sinful practices such as child abuse and pornography and abortion and racism and the mistreatment of women. It, should, it would be sinful to respond with violence toward those who are committing these sins. Many times we want to get even when we are angry. That is in the flesh. 
But we need to learn to check ourselves to make sure that we direct our righteous anger righteously. That's exactly what Nehemiah did when he got angry here. So what did he do when he got angry? Very interesting. Look at the second one, please. In verse number seven, after serious thought, everybody say that, serious thought. After serious thought. So Nehemiah did not jump into reacting in the flesh. He was angry, but verse number seven, he writes, after serious thought. He paused, he consulted with himself before he challenged with ones, the ones guilty of exploiting the, uh, exploiting the poor. This is very significant, church. He didn't go off in a rage to blast those who were wrong. He stopped, he cooled off, he thought about it, he prayed things through, and then only he spoke. That's what Solomon writes in, 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 in uh, Proverbs 16, 13, beg your pardon, is 1632. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. We all, but especially leaders, need to exercise self-control when we get angry. I really thank the Lord, and after much pruning, I have tons of patience. You want to be sure that in your anger you do not sin. When I am angry, it didn't happen on day one. Over a period of time, I have disciplined myself to refrain from saying anything when I'm angry because I know that if I don't give time to think through that, I will be sinning. If you react in anger without prayer and thought, all you have done is address the symptom. Someone has got a headache, you have given a Tylenol, but you don't, you have not dealt with the cause if there's a tumor in the head. So only the Lord can soften the hardened heart. We need to appeal to the Lord for his righteous intervention. We should not take matters in our own hands. So looking at Nehemiah, the first thing that we see as he biblically as a leader to, to confront this, he got righteously angry first, and then he exercised self-control. And thirdly, let's see what he's doing. He followed the principles of biblical confrontation. The most difficult part and the most uncomfortable thing is to confront those who are causing problems, isn't it? It is very difficult when you see somebody sinning and for you to go and say, brother, sister, you're sinning. It's easy to talk about them with others, but it's difficult to go to that person straight and look into their eyes and tell that. But here we see that Nehemiah had to confront the wealthy, the rich, the influential, the people with power. But he confronted them not out of rage. He confronted them after serious thought and prayer. It wasn't very comfortable because it was the elite group. It was the wealthy group. It was the rich and the famous that Nehemiah is confronting. I'm sure these thoughts would have gone in his mind. What if they use their cloud to cause a lot more damage? What if they stop their support for this project? 
Maybe I should stall for time until the wall is finished and let me then confront them. Let me finish the project first. But he didn't do that. Nehemiah did not do that. See how Nehemiah handled the conflict in verse number 7. He said, after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. The term usury simply means illegal action or practice of lending money at unreasonably high rates of interest. That's what the word means. So he's privately confronting them. He's meeting, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers. Met them, rebuked them. Now, we really don't know how he handled it, whether it was one meeting or ten meetings. We have no idea whether he went alone, whether he took people with him. We have no idea. But we could clearly see that he was applying the Matthew 18 principles. He was dealing with them head on. But did Nehemiah succeed in private? We don't know for sure, but probably not. Because his actions reveal that. There is no record response from the nobles at this point. So the next step Nehemiah does is he moved to public confrontation. Look at 7b. So, look at this. I called a great assembly against them. He confronted them in private. Naturally, there was no response. So I called a great assembly against them. And then in verse number 8, he rebuked the leaders. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nation. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Then there was silence and found nothing to say. He was pointing out how he and others had redeemed their Jewish brothers who had been sold to the nations. He's reminding them, listen guys, it's me and others who redeemed you and brought you to this. Now it is you who are causing similar problems to your fellow brethren. He said that their behavior is a, was a mockery for the enemies and they could not respond. You know what? When we see these conflicts happening within the body of Christ, it is we become a laughing stock for the pagans. When there are issues that have not been dealt with in your own homes, you become a laughing stock. You become the, the, the person for gossip. For the pagans. And that's what Nehemiah is saying here. Nehemiah says in verse number 9, Then I said, what, are you, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Nehemiah is in essence, he's saying it's a mockery. We're becoming a laughing stock. We are becoming a subject for ridicule by the enemies. And in verse number 10, Nehemiah says this now. Nehemiah spoke of what he did. He had loaned money in accordance with the law without charging interest. He's saying, 
I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. You are giving it for an interest, but I also gave these fellows money and grain. When he spoke to the Jews, Nehemiah is just using the plural. Now look at the last part of it. Let us stop this usury to identify with these men. He didn't go and say, you better do it, it's your... He's, as a leader, he's now becoming, taking responsibility. And he's saying, let us stop it. Let us stop it. He's appealing to the wealthy men to join him in doing the same. Nehemiah is bringing himself down to be part of the solution now. When a church member fails, the pastor or the elder must empathize with that person not to stand out and to judge the one who has fallen. When a spouse fails or a child does something wrong, the leader of the household should identify so that the others can be restored. We are not condemning somebody, we want to restore them when we are dealing with conflicts. Now, we see in Psalm 40, David was deep down in the horrible pit. And here's what David says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me out of a horrible pit. What is David saying here? God came down, inclined. means he's putting his hand down, bent down to lift David up. If someone is drowning, we need to jump into the water to rescue them. We are going to get wet. But we ought to be secure, of course, that we don't fail. We don't fall. We see that Nehemiah's righteous anger gave him the courage to confront those who were wrong, but in love. Let us stop this usury. Let us stop this usury because he had one goal of restoring them. So church, as we look at this one as leaders, there are three things that we looked at. Nehemiah, firstly, he got righteously angry. He exercised self-control. He followed the biblical principle of confrontation. Fourthly, what Nehemiah is doing is setting a personal example of godliness. Nehemiah shows that leaders must be above reproach, proving to be an example to the flock. He had spent his own money, he says, to redeem the Jews from slavery. He loaned money to them without interest. He is, in essence, showing to the other Jews who are taking advantage of the poor Jews that here, I, here look at me. I am above reproach. And as you read, continue to read the narrative in, in verses 14 to 19, we learn his own example as governor over a 12-year period. You can look at that. He mentions not out of pride, but to give an example to other leaders to follow. So what are the personal examples of godliness we see in Nehemiah here? Look at verses 14 and 15 here. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, please follow very carefully, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, and look at the next one. Neither I nor my brothers 
ate the governor's provisions. Neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But he says in verse 15, But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so. We see that Nehemiah did not abuse his power as the leader. He rightly could have demanded it. He could have demanded a food allowance as his predecessors had done by taxing the people. And then sending their servants out to collect tax with force. Because the governor had a right to such an allowance and Nehemiah could have imposed it. Look at it in verse 17. And at my table, 150 Jews and officials at his table daily besides those who came in from surrounding nations. Nehemiah was such an influential man. Now see what privileges he had as the governor. Look at verse number 18. What type of food they were eating. Now that which was prepared daily was, an, was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. This is the type of food that Nehemiah was entitled to have as a governor. Yet in spite of all of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on these people. But Nehemiah set aside his right to the governor's food's allowance. Apparently bore their cause out of his own pocket. So it begs the question, church, why didn't he abuse his power as the leader? It's a lesson for all of us. As leaders in our household, as leaders in the church, or as leaders in your workplaces, why don't you abuse your power? Nehemiah gives two reasons why he changed the trend of his predecessors and laid aside his right. The first thing he says, but I did not do so. Read with me the next one. Because of the fear of God. He feared God. Secondly, we see in verse number 18, because the bondage was heavy on these people. Because he was concerned for the people. So the two reasons why Nehemiah didn't abuse his power is number one, he feared God, and number two, he cared about hurting people. So every man in leadership must constantly remember that you are only a servant under God. That you must answer to God someday. Church, when I look at this church, seekers, I know this is not my church. This is Christ's church. And I am just his under-shepherd. When I look at my family, I know it's not my family, my wife, or my children. The Lord has graciously loaned them to me. I want every one of you to have that attitude. 
When you go home today, you're going to look at your parents and your, and your siblings and your children and you're going to say, they are not mine, but God has loaned them to me. When you look at the church, you're going to say, this church is not mine, it's Christ's church. I'm just the under-shepherd. I'm only a caretaker, I'm a steward here. I have to fear God and care about these hurting people because church, one day, we are answerable. All of us are answerable. I am talking to believers who have the assurance of eternal salvation, who have the assurance of an eternal place in heaven, but all of us, every one of us, will stand in the judgment seat of Christ. And we are answerable. Many Christian leaders fall into the trap of thinking that their position gives them certain rights and powers. Some pastors and elders think that they are sovereign. They can call the shot. Some fa fathers and mothers think that they rule the homes. We are the bosses in the house. Some employees drive, his, drive their workers as slaves. Sadly, in many Christian homes, fathers and mothers struggle with power when confronted. Husbands and wives react over pride when it comes to conflicts. Pride always goes before the fall. We fail to realize our primary responsibility, church. If every one of us can take our God-given roles seriously within the household, trust me, no conflicts is hard to overcome. There will be conflicts. When you are living with another person, there will be conflict. It doesn't matter how much you love that person, whether it's in church or in your home, there will be conflict. But if you take your God-given role seriously, out of fear of God, out of care for the hurting people, it's easy to overcome conflicts. It's easy. So you might ask, Pastor, what are the roles and responsibilities for us? I want to talk about the household roles and responsibilities. Husbands, it's all taken from the scriptures. Paul writes to the saints in Ephesus and he says, Husbands, love your wives as, just as Christ loved the church. He didn't stop there, church. This is what he says, that he might sanctify and cleanse her. Who? The husband is supposed to sanctify and cleanse the wife with the washing of water by the word. That's your responsibility. Is that what you are doing in your home? That's your role. If you want to be the leader, that is what you are expected to do. Simple as that. Wives, wives, you are to submit to your husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Is that what you are doing in your homes? Children, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Obey your parents in the Lord, this is right. And he says that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. I, I've said this many times when I was growing up when my dad says, comply and complain, I didn't understand that. But certainly when you look at Ephesians chapter 6, you realize that. Comply. Do obey your parents in the Lord. Because it, it, it gives you a long Healthy, happy life. And parents, 
Do not provoke your children to wrath and bring them up in training and admonition of the Lord. Church, when we have this executed within the four walls of our homes, naturally, the community will change. The church will change. Because you are bringing that into the body. Nehemiah's example of godliness is seen in the way he conducted himself. We see that Nehemiah did not abuse his power as leader because he feared God and he had genuine concern for his people. So, so, so far we looked at four things as dealing in biblical manner. We, we saw that Nehemiah had a righteous anger, he exercised self-control, he followed biblical principle of confrontation, he displayed godly example, and finally... Finally, verse number 19. Nehemiah worked for God's approval. Everybody say God's approval. God's approval. Nehemiah was not working for man's applause, but for God's approval. For him, it was only an audience of one. Audience of one. Remember me, my God, for good according to all that I have done for these people. In his prayer, Nehemiah did not look for praise from man, but from God. Nehemiah probably originally intended that no one else would see this narrative because this was not written to anybody. This was just a diary Nehemiah was writing. But we must be glad that God took this personal diary and gave it to us. So we can learn from this man called Nehemiah, a godly man who feared God and who had concern for the people. What a lesson we learn as to how to handle internal conflict. So it shows, church, that a leader must first lead by example. That a leader must command his leadership by his own walk. That leaders' public words and private actions must say the same thing. Let me repeat this to you, that your public words and your private actions must say the same thing. Must say the same thing. We all should labor for God's approval. Even if people do not say thanks to us. And as we look at this passage, we see that Nehemiah exercised righteous anger. Under control, of course. He confronted those at fault biblically. He set a godly personal example. But he sought only God's approval. So as I wrap this chapter up, people, as followers, we must deal directly with the leaders. Whatever the issues it may be, any issue of contention, any issue of conflict. But at the same time, the leaders must command leadership. Just because you are positioned as a pastor, that doesn't make you a leader. It's a position that you earn, you command, I cannot demand. But as leaders, you must deal in biblical manner. 
It's okay to have righteous anger, but it must be self-controlled. And we must have a biblical confrontation of the conflict. And we must set godly examples as leaders. And in the whole process, we only seek God's approval. Just let me close with this. From 30 years of ministry, I can say this very openly. There are only very, very selected few I have seen respond that readily for correction when confronted. But I just want to leave with this passage for us to take home. Hebrews 13, verse number 7. It gives us a great exhortation. It might sound very strange for us today when people have no concept of being under spiritual authority. Here's what the Bible says. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. Church, at times, we don't want to obey our leadership. But I want us to know that's the biblical thing to do. That's what we see in the Hebrew writer is saying here. You obey who roll over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls. So let us learn to submit to God-ordained leadership. Your spiritual authority, your parental authority, your secular authority. But if you are in authority, you command your leadership by your walk. You demonstrate that by godly example. And you seek the approval of God alone. Because sometimes you will not be popular, but God sees it. Shall we pray as the worship team comes? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the lesson that we're learning from Nehemiah, his own life, as we see how he was able to overcome the internal conflict, the conflict that arose with, between the people whom he was ministering, between the wealthy Jews and the poorer Jews. And first, Father, Father, we really want to follow the examples of Nehemiah. Help us, God, first and foremost, to, to, as we see conflicts arising, help us to go to the source of authority, not to gossip about it, not to talk about it, but to deal with it directly with the leadership. And those of us in the leadership, whether it is in our homes or whether it is in our church or whether it is in our workplaces, help us to command our leadership by our walk. May our anger, the righteous anger, be controlled. May we confront the issues using biblical principles. But most importantly, may we set godly examples to others. May our focus be to be because we fear God, because we have concern for our brethren, be seen with the others. But most importantly, May we seek 
only your approval. So help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.